got into the habit of when, when, you, when you're in the snow, uh, particularly if you're on a bike and you're cycling, I was trying to teach this to my kids, is what you want to do before you get on the bike is you roll up a snowball and you just carry it with you and then you wait because there'll be, there'll be kids that will throw snowballs at bikes because it's happened to me, it's happened to me. It made me cross, so I went prepared. And this kid, he gave me that look and before he could even release his snowball, pajang! Yes! Children of Amsterdam, nil, Matt, one. <laughs> right. If you want to turn to uh, John chapter 17 in your Bible, we're starting a, a, new, a new series here. We, uh, we were working through the book of Colossians towards the end of last year and then the first few weeks of this year. Uh, and then we jumped around a little bit for a couple of weeks. Uh, now we're going to spend sort of six or seven weeks in John 17, although we start this week and then we've got a few different people speaking over the next couple of weeks. Uh, so then we'll kind of start and then pause for a few weeks and then we'll come back to this in March. Um, but John 17 is, uh, as, you, as we get into it, you'll discover some more of it and it's an amazing chapter. And basically you get like a, a window, a kind of an insight into Jesus' very own prayer life. You get to see how Jesus prayed. Um, and one of the most remarkable things about it is you see Jesus praying um, for us, for the church. He starts off by praying for his disciples and then starts praying for the, those that are to, to, to come. The, the future church is who he's praying for. So this six weeks we're calling future church, which sounds like it should arrive in kind of PowerPoint style, like whiz onto the screen with one of those kind of sound effects. Future church. But we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. Sorry. Sorry. So uh, if you want to, to um, yeah, John 17, and it will sh should appear as if by magic on the screen. There we go. Let's read this. John 17 from verse 1 to 5, and then we'll skip to the end and just read a verse from the end as well. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And then just verse 24, Father, this is kind of Jesus concluding his prayer. Father, I desire that they also, he's praying for us, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you love me before the foundation of the world. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that we come to this eternal God that before the world began, you were there, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You were there in creation, in the making of the world. You've been there in every moment of our 
existence, every moment of this cosmos, every moment you're there, God. Not just as a distant figure looking down on the world he's created, thinking, what am I going to do? But you're actively involved, sovereignly guiding every aspect of our lives. And you saw the mess and destruction in this world and you sent your son, Jesus, this wonderful salvation plan. And you've saved us as we've been singing. You've rescued us. And you've called us into this beautiful relationship with you that we can know you, the living God. We pray you'd help us to do that this morning ever deeper, to know you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Now, we live in the city which uh, is famous for lots of things, but one of the things it's famous for is its art. This is the city of Rembrandt, to name just one. And Rembrandt painted, I think, over 700 different paintings. Um, and you could, you could go and see uh, every one of them that's in this city. There'd be, I think, several hundred that are exhibited in various places in this city. You could read every book you could find about Rembrandt. You could go and study a degree in art history. Uh, you could, well, we live in the same city as he did. We can walk the same streets. We can experience the same weather. I'm sure it snowed often. We can, we can get this kind of picture, this glimpse of his life, but our knowledge of Rembrandt will always be slightly limited because he's dead, right? He died like four or 500 years ago. He's gone. None of us can walk up to the street and have a conversation with him. We can't go for a beer with him. Um, and from what you read about him, he was a bit of an awkward character, so it might not have been that fun anyway. But we can't, that's, that's as much as we can know of someone like Rembrandt. And you can go and stand in front of his paintings and you can feel like you can somehow experience something of what he's trying to communicate, but it's always limited, only ever to a certain point. Now, for me as, as a parent, you know, there are no books written about my children. If there were, I would read them, but there aren't any written about them. Um, I can't go and study a degree, a course in my kids. You know, I could study a degree in, you know, childcare or whatever, but that's probably not going to help me with my own children. But yet I know my kids in a much more intimate, personal way than I could ever know some figure from history. Because that's my privilege as a parent to know them in a deep way. I can know them in a, in a very different way from how I could know Rembrandt or whoever else or a football player or whoever. I get to experience a deeper, more intimate relationship. And when it talks here about the fact that we get to know God, that's the sort of knowledge we can have of God, right? We can study God, we should study, we should read books, we should read our Bible. We can go and, uh, go and you know, take years out to study and try and find out more about Jesus. But we're actually called into this much more personal, intimate relationship with God. It's not just about what you read in books. It's not just about what I'm gonna say from this stage, but we can know God. He goes us into this intimate, personal, experiential relationship with God. So a, a brilliant book, is by uh, J.I. Packer's called Knowing God. It's a really simple book. It's been around for about 30 years. It's a brilliant read. And his in introduction to the book, he, he, he uses an illustration and says, if you were just uh, two men sitting on a balcony, and there's lots of balconies in our city, and you can look down on the road, 
And from your view on the balcony, you can see people traveling up and down the road, making their journeys. And you can see the, the potholes, the things they need to avoid. You can see where the bikes are going to cross and knock them off. You can see the challenges that are ahead of them. But all you're ever doing is sitting on your balcony watching. He said, for you to be walking on the road is a completely different experience. To go on that journey, to go on that walk is completely different. And that's what we get to experience. We don't just look down on God or look up to God in a distant way. It's not just we don't just sit from our desks or from our chairs observing God. We get to walk with God. We get to go on this journey. It says in uh, Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 6, this beautiful verse. It says, thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look. Ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. We're called not just to look, but to walk on these paths with God. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about what it is to know God and what that really means in a deep personal way. And, and, and specifically in the context of what it means to look upon the glory of Jesus. We were talking in these verses about uh, being able to, this kind of sense of glorifying the Son. We're going to just unpack that a little bit and see what that means. What, do, what does it mean for us to kind of glory, to behold, to contemplate the glory of Jesus Christ? Um, and as I said, we're working in this series, Future Church. Do you like the... Uh, so today we're going to talk about knowledge, or a better way to put it, we can talk about the, what it is to have knowledge, to contemplate the glory of Jesus and then over the coming weeks, we're going to talk about mission, family, about being a minority, truth, and witness. Um, and a, a great place to start is the, the, what's called the Westminster Confession, which is basically like a statement of faith. And it, what the, it's like a, a whole kind of list of beliefs, and it asks a question in bold, which is there in bold, and it gives you an answer. So the question here, what is the chief end of man? Now, that, that doesn't mean chief end as in, you know, like top or bottom, like, oh, my head is the chief end. Oh. It means, like, what's the chief purpose? You know, what's your reason? And then it gives you, gives you an answer. So what we're going to do is I'm going to read the top bit, and you're going to read the bottom bit in response out loud. C can you do that? Yeah. Some of you are looking like, oh, no, audience participation. <laughs> What's he going to get us to do next? You know, we're going to start juggling oranges or something. There's no oranges, don't worry. So, okay, I'm going to read the top, and then you're going to read the bottom in response. Can we do that? Yeah. Great, okay. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God. Amen. Brilliant. Thank you. And that's it. That, that's what this is saying is this is the purpose of life. What's the chief end? What are you made for? Lem was talking about it this morning, his introduction. We're made to have joy in God, to know God. Our chief end, our purpose is to glorify God. And in that glorifying, we get to enjoy. That's what it is to enjoy, not just him. That is to enjoy life, to live life to the full, is to glorify God, to glorify Jesus and in this chapter in John 17, as I said, we, we find this is written the, 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 the night before Jesus dies. We find him praying. We get this kind of sneak preview into his prayer life. 
And he says in verse three, three he says that he prays that, that we might know him. That's his prayer for us, that we might somehow know God. Verse 24, we read at the end, it says Jesus, he's praying that we might see something of his glory, that we might capture a glimpse of something of who he is. Now to help us to answer this, because you might think, you might think, well, why? That's a good question, that's a very important question. Why, why is this the chief end of man? Why is this the chief purpose? Why should we take glory in God? Why should we worship him at all? What's that about? What does that even look like? Why is Jesus so insistent in his prayer that we know him, particularly that we see his glory? What's that going on about? Well, there's a brilliant book which is gonna help us. Uh, it's written, uh, again, about the time that Rembrandt was alive, actually, about 500 years ago, by a guy called John Owen. It's called The Glory of Christ, which is a brilliant place to start. Um, some of his language is a bit clunky, so I'll try and interpret, interpret his language. Um, but he said this, he said, um, actually, maybe it will appear on the screen. Oh, there we go. He said, without this knowledge, he's talking about the glory of Christ, without this knowledge, the mind of man, however priding itself in other inventions and discoveries, is wrapped up in darkness and confusion. It's the complete opposite to what our world says. Our world says to rescue yourself from darkness and confusion, you need enlightenment. You need to understand, you need to reason. Um, you don't need God, God keeps you in darkness. You need to understand things. Whereas John Owen's saying the complete opposite. He's not, not saying you shouldn't understand things, that's good, that's okay. But he's saying actually to really come out into the light, we need the knowledge of who Jesus is. And then he says, the contemplation of Christ's glory is the universal remedy and cure. He's saying for every problem, for every need, for every issue, the cure, the thing that fixes you, is the contemplation of Christ's glory. It's knowing God. It's the answer. It's the cure. And we're gonna look at four ways that he explains that that's true. And he gives four advantages, which, uh, which he's, he's a Puritan, right? So if you don't know about Puritans, what they, they like to use really long titles for things. So there was a, a guy who wrote this book. This is literally the title of his book. And Tom's an author, so I'm gonna suggest this for the title for your next book. This is just the title, right? It says, a humble attempt to promote an explicit agreement and visible union of God's people through the world in extraordinary prayer for the revival of religion and the advancements of Christ's kingdom on earth pursuant to scripture promise and prophecies concerning the last time. That's the title of his book, right? I mean, surely for me that would be the book itself. That's as much as I could write. So Tom, we're gonna go that next time around. Yeah, snappy, snappy. So this is what, uh, so what I've done, I've condensed what John Owen said. So he gives us four points which I've condensed down. So these are four advantages of contemplating Jesus Christ. Number one, advantage number one. Eternal preparation. So he says we should be made ready for heaven I've put it as eternal preparation. He's following on from verse three of John here where it says, and this is eternal life. This is what eternal life is, that they know you, the only God, and Jesus whom you sent. And you might think, do you know what? I've, 
I've never even, I've never even considered that. Maybe you've never even considered eternal life. Maybe you've never considered what happens when I, when I die. What, what happens? Maybe you just think life just ends, it's just all over and then things just kind of go black. And that's an important thing to consider for all of us because it's kind of an idea that it's not really compatible with our Western mindset. Because if you'd, if you'd lived 200 years ago before the advance of modern medicine, we would have, we would have known a lot about death because it would have been all around us. You know, it, infant mortality was so much higher, so you know, most of, maybe one or two at least of your brothers and sisters would have either died in childbirth or died when they were very young. But that just would have been true. So even jo John Owen, who wrote this, this book, which I'm quoting from, I think he had seven kids and all of them died before he did. Right, imagine that as a father, to lose all of your kids. So he knew something of this, but in our world, we don't really know much about death because it's not really around us much. Every now and again, suddenly a grandparent dies and we think, oh, where did that come from? Or suddenly things happen and they're much more shocking and dramatic and you think, oh, goodness. But we don't spend much time ever really considering what happens when I die and it's an important question. It's an important thing to think about. Maybe it's something you want to go home and just think about. What happens? Do I need to, how should I prepare myself? And John Owen says, the great way to prepare yourself is to start now by learning to look upon Jesus' glory, learning to live a life for him, because that's what, that's what Eternus is all about. We were singing about it earlier. When I've been there 10,000 years, we'll be praising, we'll be singing. That's what it is to be in heaven. And you might, maybe that sounds boring to you, but let me assure you, it will not feel like that at all, because you'll be doing exactly what you're made for. So get ready, get prepared, get started now. So that's his first point. The, uh, and the second one is, well, he puts it as virtue will proceed from a real view of Christ's glory and a transforming power to change us into the same image. I've put personal, personal transformation, an advantage of contemplating Christ, personal transformation. Oh, let me find the right verse, here we go. So two Corinthians, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. He's saying when we, when we behold the glory of the Lord, when we contemplate the glory of Jesus Christ, something happens within us where even through the activity of doing that, God begins to transform us. Maybe that sounds a bit weird. Well, think, of, think about it this way. If, if, um, if you're really into, say, football, for instance, and you spend all your time studying football and thinking about it, if you spend all your time engrossed in it, what happens is, I don't know about you, because you know, I, I love football, and... Um, you have to be careful because if you get so engrossed, particularly in your team, in the end it can begin to, I don't know if you've noticed this, it begin to almost affect your mood. When your team wins, you feel happy, and when your team loses, you feel sad. That's not a good thing, right? <laughs> but you've, become, you've so kind of become, 
transfixed in this thing. You've so been contemplating it. You've focused all your energies and time on it that it's actually begun to almost get hold of you. Begins to sort of almost govern your emotions, how you feel. So that's weird, isn't it? I mean, that's a, maybe a silly example, but the same could happen with, with money. You know, if it becomes the thing that you're thinking about, that you're obsessing about, that you're worrying about, it begins to govern you. Things are going well financially, you're happy. Things are hard, you get sad. It's, this, it's because this is happening, because you're, you're not beholding the glory of God, so you're not being transformed into anything else. You're beholding the glory of money, so you're transformed by that desire instead. Do you see what I mean? If you look at the wrong things, it's gonna happen with pornography. If, if that's what you're beholding, that's what will transform you. That's an ugly thing to think about, but it's true. These things can govern you, they can take control, they can transform you. I'd much rather be transformed by this than anything else. Let's move on to the next one. Perfect rest. John Owen puts it like this. The constant contemplation of the glory of Christ will give rest, satisfaction, Complacency to the souls of those who are exercised therein. Perfect rest. Romans puts it like this. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit, to set your mind on God, to set your eyes on Jesus Christ, is life and peace. It's peace. You know, we, we, we think that we think to, to get yourself a bit of rest, you've had a long week and you feel tired and it's a Friday night. You think, I just need some, some escapism. You ever thought like that? You think, I just need a good book and a cup of coffee or I need to watch a good game of sport and a beer or just a good movie. I just need to escape into something and that will give me rest. And, and it will, it will, but it will be so temporary, so short-lived. I'm not saying those things aren't bad. Enjoy those things, those things are good to enjoy, but that's not where you get any lasting rest from. That'll be a short thing, which is okay. Enjoy the short thing, but be aware that's all it really is. It says in, in 1 Peter, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Take your worries, and your fears, and don't just try and hide them away. Don't just try and escape for them, even just for an hour and a half. I'm just gonna watch this movie, and I'll just escape from all these worries. Take all those worries and bring them to Jesus. It says, cast them on him. Cast your fears, your worries, cast all your cares, your problems, bring them to Jesus. And then you'll find that uh, he cares for you. You'll find peace in that. This is how you find rest. It's something that everybody is searching for. We all search for it at different points in our lives, different points in our weeks. We search for just for moments of rest. Life's busy, life's tiring, we try and find rest. This, this is where you find rest. If, you, if you're not regularly kind of coming to the well and finding rest here, you will be tired. You will get weary, not just physically, but within your soul. You'll carry this tiredness with you, it'll wear you down. If you keep coming back to Jesus, getting refreshed there, he says, those who are thirsty, come and drink. Come and drink of Jesus, and you'll suddenly find it's, it's life. 
It's energy, it's food for your soul. It will do you good. And then the final one that uh, we come to is this one at the bottom. I don't know if you can see that. John Owen puts it like this. The sight of the glory of Christ is the spring and cause of everlasting blessedness. Everlasting blessing. Because maybe all this kind of talk of beholding and contemplating, maybe that sounds a bit odd to you because you think, well, I can't, I can't see God. Like he's not, he's, not, I can't, he's not physically sitting here in the room. I can't fix my eyes on him. I can't see Jesus. Like what are you talking about? Which is, uh, again, it's an important thing to ask. But what, what, what John Owen is saying is that there are times where you can't see God, but you can know him. You can f- find a blessing from him. So he puts it like this. He says, uh, there enters, oh, I don't know if it's gonna appear on the screen or not, I can't remember, let's see. Here we go. There enters sometimes by the word and spirit into their hearts such a sense of the glory of God shining forth in Christ as affects and satiates their souls with ineffable joy. Now what he's saying is, let me give you my translation, basically what he's saying is sometimes God just breaks in, into your life. Sometimes God just speaks through the word, through his spirit, sometimes he just will encounter you and in those moments, through the work of Jesus, you find a deep and profound joy, all right? Just knowing God isn't just about books and study. Those things are so important, but you can know God in a deep, personal way. I hope you're getting hold of this. This is really important. You might find this sounds a bit wacky, but let me just explain it. Philippians 4 says this, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Sometimes it comes like a, like a peace, and it surpasses understanding. It doesn't make any sense, but sometimes God just moves and speaks. As I was saying, we, we can know God not just as, as a student knows a subject. We know God as a child can know a father. We get to have that intimate relationship with God. So there's, let me tell you two stories. Again, and we're gonna go back a few hundred years. Two stories. One is a guy called Jonathan Edwards, who was a great American preacher. And he wrote this. Let me read this to you. This is his account of something that happened to him. And again, the language is a bit quirky, but just bear with it. This is a story of something that happened. He said, as I rode out into the woods, I presume on his horse, for, any of you have a horse? No, no. This is, as I said, it was a few hundred years ago. So as I rode out into the woods for my health in 1737, having alighted from my horse, there you go, he's a horse, in a retired place, as my manner commonly has been to walk for divine contemplation and prayer. So he's gone somewhere to pray, basically. I had a view that was for me extraordinary of the glory of the Son of God as mediator between God and man and his wonderful, great, full, pure and sweet grace and love and meek and gentle condescension. The grace appeared so calm and sweet, appeared also great above the heavens 
the person of Christ appeared ineffably excellent and excellently great enough to swallow up all thoughts and conceptions which continued as near as I could judge about an hour. So he's saying for, he spends an hour basically just caught up in God, that's what he's saying. Caught up in just kind of a revelation of just thinking of who God is. He said, which kept me part of the time in a flood of tears and weeping aloud. I felt an ardency of soul to be what I know not, otherwise how to express emptied, this is a great word, and annihilated. He, he's saying I was annihilated by God. He's really going for it. To lie in the dust and to be full of Christ alone, to love him with a holy and pure love, to trust in him, to live upon him, to serve him, to be perfectly sanctified and made pure with a divine and heavenly purity. He had this encounter with God. This moment where God just came and filled him afresh. And filled him with just a deep joy, a deep knowledge of God. Let me, another guy called Thomas Goodwin, he was also a Puritan a few hundred years ago. This is how he tries to describe it. He says, a man and his little child, they're walking down the road and they're walking hand in hand and the child knows he is the child of his father and he knows that his father loves him and he rejoices in that, he's happy in it. There is no uncertainty about it. But suddenly, the father, moved by some impulse, takes hold of the child, picks him up, kisses him, embraces him, showers his love upon him, then puts him down again, and they go on walking together. You can imagine that story, I'm sure you can picture that. He says, that's it. The child knew before that his father loved him, he knew that he was his child, but oh, the loving embrace, this extra outpouring of love, this unusual manifestation of it, this is the kind of thing, the spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. See, that's sometimes what God wants to do, is just break in and encounter you afresh, and just, more than anything, just to give you a, a fresh reminder of how much he loves you, to grab hold of your heart, and it's a beautiful thing. It's not something to be scared of or worried about. It's not even something to really seek. You know, I want to seek this encounter. Just fix your eyes on Jesus. It's what Jonathan Edwards was doing in his field by his horse. He's just fixing his eyes on God. And God just came and met with him. I've had moments that myself. I've just been praying or worshipping. And God's just spoken to me. Sometimes just through... You know, I read the Bible every day. And a lot of the time it's just reading. And it just kind of goes in. It's, it's like... It's like eating fruit and veg every day. I know it's doing me good, but I don't necessarily feel the immediate effects. But there are some times when God just speaks to you. A verse just kind of comes alive to you. You think, I've never seen that before. God just ministers to you powerfully and you think, oh yes, he does really love me. He's his father that really cares for me. And he really cares for you and he really loves you. It can be through reading your word, it can be through praying, Sometimes God just speaks. And so that's why maybe the most important reason that we should glory in Christ, because it will do you good in a powerful way. And you might think, hold on a second. What, I thought this was about the church. What's this got to do with the church? You know, future church, fuzzy noises, what's that got to do with anything? In, uh, in Revelation, it, it says this. This is Jesus, he's talking to seven churches and he says to one of them, this is the last book of the Bible, he says, I have this against you, 
that you've abandoned the love you had at first. He's talking to a church community, a family like us. The most important thing for any church, any community of believers, the most important thing is keeping Jesus at the very center of just loving him wholeheartedly. Which is why every week we talk about Jesus a lot and we sing songs about Jesus a lot because it's the most important thing and we want to keep it at the very center. You could say, surely, surely the church, you should be doing things like social justice, you should be caring for the poor, you should be talking about that. And those, you know, we do talk about it from time to time. It is good to do those sort of things. But that's not our God. <laughs> those are things that we can do as a response, as part of our worship even. But we don't talk about that every week because we want to talk about Jesus every week because he's the most important thing. It's what the church is for, to love Jesus. So let's not get sidetracked. And you might think another, another objection Another objection that you might have is, you might think, how can, how can I find joy in someone else's glory? Hmm? You know, you might think that sounds a bit weird. Like, who, who is this God that commands that I give him glory? Like, it almost might sound a bit arrogant that God could say that. You think, surely if God loves me, he should just be loving me. Why is he telling me that I should give him glory? You know, if I walked up to Len and said, Len, I'd like some glory, please. <laughs> you might, I don't know what Len would say. What would you say, Len? Yeah, of course. Yeah, there you go, of course, yeah. <laughs> good, good. You can do that. We'll have that conversation later. But, it, <laughs> but I think if Len said it to me, I don't know if I'd respond in the same way, to be honest. I think, I'd like, what, what, hold on a second. Who are you to command that I give you glory? It's a bit weird. Why does God, why does God ask that of us? What's, what's he saying? Surely God should be more concerned with us than his glory. And uh, a, a preacher called John Piper, he puts it like this. He says, our happiest moments, your happiest moments, have not been self-saturated moments, but self-forgetful moments, right? If you think about that, the times when you felt the greatest joy the greatest happiness are not when you're just doing something you really love when no one else is around. Just, yes, I get to do this. Those things never really are that joyful. But it's when maybe, I don't know, you've, uh, you're encountering like an amazing piece of nature, some scenery, you've climbed a mountain, you get to look out on this amazing view and there's something that happens. You know that feeling? something that kind of grabs hold of you, that sort of almost, it's like a transcendence. It kind of takes you out of yourself and you're viewing on something and you completely forget anything about your worries, your cares, who you are. You're glimpsing something bigger and more glorious and brighter than yourself. And it just catches hold of you. And it's just, yes, that, that. And you suddenly find this perfect peace and love and joy. It's like, a, you know, you, if you're the, the, the bridegroom waiting to be married and you see your, your bride coming down the aisle when they come into the church and you look around and you, you forget everything about yourself, you just, yes, I'm so excited. Yes, this is my wife. And you get to, you, you, your focus is on something completely different. Those are the happiest moments. Not when we're just caught up in our own glory, but when we're, a moment of almost complete wonderful forgetfulness 
just focusing on something bigger and brighter than ourselves. Because the thing is, I guess the way to describe it is, is you're a bit like a, you know, like a how a magnet works. I don't really know much about science, but you get two magnets and they either kind of repel or attract, right? And if you hold them the wrong way around. And the thing is, we're like a bit like a magnet that all the time we're trying to find joy in things. We're trying to find satisfaction in things. And we, we kind of push ourselves down onto things and it doesn't quite fit, it doesn't quite work. It repels away, it bounces off. So we go and try and something else. Maybe this will give me satisfaction. And we try and kind of press into that and it kind of repels and bounces off. <laughs> when you come to God, it just attracts. It just meets, it works. Your soul just kind of fits. What I'm saying is, what's what you're made for? You're made to give glory to God. You might think, well, that's a bit weird, but it's just true. It's what you're made for. And when you do that, you're just living out your ultimate life purpose, the chief end of man, to glorify God. And in that glorifying God, this wonderful joy comes. We get to enjoy God, and it's just perfect delight. I'm just going to skip forward a little bit. And the, the thing is that the kind of the pinnacle of this glory, you know, the thing we should observe and look on is this from Philippians and then we'll look at a couple of other verses. He said, bestowed on him the name that is above every, number, every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is our Lord. And sorry, it's actually missed a bit. I forgot to put it on the screen. Let me read the, the first bit. It'll make more sense this way. It says, Jesus, having emptied himself, taken the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus, every knee should bow on heaven and on earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, when we, when we come to the the cross, we get to see the, the pinnacle of Jesus' glory, which might, might seem a bit, a bit odd, because you think, well, surely, surely coming, surely this should be a defeat. Jesus has died. Surely this is just death. Surely this is, this is the end of faith, not the beginning. Surely this is the kind of the end of all the glory you know, Jesus has had his, his ministry, his fun times, the healing, the feeding of the 5,000. All the fun stuff's over now. He's dead. Sure, this is just the end. But the thing is, in that, what looks like a defeat, it's actually this total, complete victory. Hebrews puts it like, like this. But we see him, it's talking about Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Revelation puts it like this, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. 
See, we come to Jesus' cross, his death, and we realize wonderfully that first of all, he's defeated death. We don't have to come to a, just a tomb. We could go there, but it's, it's empty. We don't go to a grave anymore, that Jesus was resurrected, that Jesus won. He defeated death. But also we come there and we see that it, it was for us. It was for me, it was for you. Jesus died for us. We get to look upon this moment of beautiful glory and think, oh, we're part of this. We're part of this beautiful story. John Piper, who I read from earlier, he puts it like this. When Jesus died to regain the fullness of his glory, he died for our joy. Love is the labor, whatever the cost of helping people be enthralled with what will satisfy them most, Jesus Christ. That is how Jesus loves us. See, what, what I'm trying to get at with all of this is that Jesus died for your joy. He died so that you could be happy. He didn't just die to, to sort of rescue you from the mess and just leave you somewhere. He died for you so that you could delight in him, that you could enjoy him forever and find perfect joy within that. He rescued you so you could look upon his glory and his wonder, look upon all that he's done for you and find wonderful, perfect joy there. And that's what it is to be a Christian. That's our chief end, that's our purpose. It's our purpose not just as individuals, but as a church to glorify God. And in doing that, we find this wonderful joy. Why don't we um, stand together and uh, Verna, where are you, Verna? Do you want to come and lead us in a, let me pray, maybe lead us in a song, help us to respond. God, we, we thank you for everything that you've done for us. That means now that we can know you, not as a student can know a subject, but we can know you as a child can know their father, that you've called us into this beautiful, intimate relationship with you, and that in glorifying you, we find this perfect joy. In pursuing this relationship with you, we find peace and rest. We can cast all our anxieties, our worries, our fears, upon you, we can say, God, have your way with those things. I just wanna be concerned with you, Jesus, not these things. I wanna gaze upon you. And when we do that, you rush to us and you meet us and we can know you. Why don't you just do that now, even in your heart? If any worries that you're carrying, maybe you just feel like oh, I've not, I don't feel like I've rested in ages. I don't feel like I know what it even means anymore to rest bring all those worries to Jesus. Just say, God, with these problems, have your way. I just want to know you before anything else. I want to be found in you. I want to be known as yours. I want to enjoy you, God. Maybe if you don't know how to do that, just pray. Just say, God, help me, help me to know how to enjoy you. Help me to know what it is to be loved by you. Help me to know that deep assurance just like a father takes a child in his arms and just loves him and embraces him. Why don't you ask that God just comes and embraces you this morning.
lets you know his love. Right, Vern is going to lead us in a song, and then after that, I'll lead us some more.